Well, who imagined that the last weekend in May we would sing Christmas songs? You heard the theme and be wearing sweater vests, but welcome to North Carolina. It is that kind of, uh, that kind of a wonderful place. There's a thing called the marshmallow test or the marshmallow experiment. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, a child is put in a room, a marshmallow is put in front of them, and they are told that if they, they can eat the marshmallow, but if they will wait, they get another marshmallow. They'll get two marshmallows. And the idea, ostensibly, is to study delayed gratification and the child's ability to delay gratification for a greater, a greater reward. The ability to excel in this test seemed to point to certain bonuses later in life, like higher SAT scores and uh, things like that. All kinds of variations have been done on this test. Um, some have found that the ability to delay gratification is greatly increased when the teacher stays in the room or the administrator stays in the room. Um, others, and the ones, the, another slant that's most of interest for us this morning is that the trustworthiness of the one making the offer of the greater reward matters a great deal in terms of the ability to delay that gratification, to succumb, we could say, to the temptation. So if the one being tested trusted the one, the, the person promising the reward, um, that helped them persevere in resisting that temptation. Um, and so this morning, as we think about that, I'd like to tweak the test. Let's not put a child in the room. Let's put you in the room. And let's not make the test some delicious, sugary morsel that you have to resist, but let's say you have to resist denying your faith because of suffering and hardship. So the tempter's promise in this test is if you will compromise your faith, I will ease your suffering. If you'll deviate from the way just a little bit, I will ease your suffering. There is, however, a counter promise. And that is that one day there will be, if you are faithful to the end, there will be the removal of all suffering and all sorrow if you will but persevere. We don't measure this test in terms of in lengths of minutes. We measure it in years. Maybe even for some of us, we measure it in decades. If you were in that room and you were in that test, would you endure? Could you endure? Why should you endure? And it's that last question that Daniel chapter 7 really helps us answer. So if you'll open your Bibles to Daniel 7, I'd like to pray for us because this passage is confusing as all get out. So uh, let, let's pray. Lord, be kind to us and bring what is true and beautiful and good for us of you from your word to us by your spirit now. Not that we might necessarily learn new cool things, but that we might be more faithful to persevere, um, even in suffering, even in hardship, to you, our great and worthy God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, Daniel chapter 7 really does address that last question, why should I endure hardship? Um, and it does it in a really curious and puzzling way. It does it by means of a dream. Um, a night vision that's given by God directly to Daniel while he was at sleep. 
Now, unlike earlier dreams and visions in the book of Daniel, this vision is not interpreted by Daniel, but rather it's interpreted by what is likely an angel. And the dream does not tell us why we suffer evil. It tells us something that may matter even more. It tells us why we should endure evil. And the old English versions of the Bible have a word for it. They called it long-suffering. The idea of bearing injuries or provocation for a long time, showing patience in spite of troubles. So, before we look at the dream itself, remember the setting, right? This is like maybe 550 B.C. Um, God's people have been conquered by Babylon. Um, a number of them have been taken into captivity. Daniel is one of those. He's captive in Babylon. Jerusalem lies in ruins. There is no king on the throne in Israel amongst God's people. And it's in, in the midst of these hardships that God gives Daniel this dream. Look at verse 1, and I'll, we'll walk through the first part of it together. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and an eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, so it's really not a dream. It's more like a nightmare, right, if you have a dream like this. And these four beasts that are coming to Daniel in this vision... Um, are portrayed as unspeakably evil. Artists have tried to render it. Here's one by Hans Holbein the Younger from the 16th century. And I like it because it preserves the creepiness factor of these beasts. I mean, those are creepy, right? Um, all the beasts in this image are um, predators of a sort, right? And three of the four beasts are hybrids. Uh, even the bear, which is not a hybrid, has some kind of strange Quasimodo thing going on with one shoulder being lifted up above the other, right? These kind of hybrid, deformed animals would have been revolting to an observant Jew as the law of Moses forbade mixtures, hybrids of any kind. Listen to the teaching from the law of Moses in Leviticus 19. You shall keep my statutes. 
You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow in your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So, So without question, these animals are depictions of gross evil, right? And they're coming up from the chaos of the sea, which is another symbol of evil as well, both in the culture of the day and in the Old Testament. So we have four evil creatures devouring what is likely human flesh coming forth from the evil chaos of a windblown sea. It's a nightmare. Now, Daniel, as you can imagine, he's deeply troubled by this. Twice, he tells us this. In verse 15, he says, My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And then down in verse 27, he wraps up this chapter, says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Now, (laughs) this morning... It's important to realize he says, I don't understand the vision after it was interpreted to him by the angel. So so that's what I'm working with this morning. So prayer is greatly appreciated. But being so troubled by this nightmare, in the midst of it, Daniel seeks an interpretation from what's likely an angelic being in the dream, perhaps even the angel Gabriel. And here is the angel's interpretation starting in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made, me, made known to me the interpretation of the things. And here's the interpretation in a nutshell in the next two verses. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But he he goes on and says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Skip down to verse 23. And thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the ten horns... Out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay. So let's talk about what we know, because there's a whole lot that we simply don't know based on what the angel interprets for us here. And you have to remember, this is a dream, okay? Crazy images and all. If you've ever had a dream like this and you woke up from it, you know that it has great emotional impact, but the meaning of all the details may not make sense to you. And so that's what's happening here. And the the kind of literature that contains dreams like this is sometimes called 
apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Okay? Um, it's been described this way. Biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery, right? That's what we are looking at in chapter 7, and we're going to see a lot of it through the rest of the book. So Daniel is told by the angel that each of these animals represents a king and a kingdom associated with it, right? And they appear to be unfolding maybe in succession. The lion, then the bear, then the leopard, and this indescribable fourth beast. And this, this if, you're, if you've been tracking with us in Daniel, should bring to mind something else that represented four kingdoms in succession, right? So if you go back to the parallels of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue in Daniel 2, Okay. In Daniel 2, he had a dream of a four-part statue. In Daniel 7, there are four beasts in the dream. In Daniel 2, the statue, the parts of the statue represent successive kingdoms. Here, the beasts represent successive kingdoms. And in Daniel 2, the material deteriorates from gold down to iron mixed with clay in the feet. And here, we go from nearly human beasts to beasts that are blaspheming and indescribably wicked. The statue in Daniel 2 is destroyed. The beasts in Daniel 7 are destroyed. The eternal kingdom in Daniel 2 is established by the, it's the rock that comes and destroys the statue. And here, as we're about to see more, the eternal kingdom is also established. So these two visions are telling us essentially the same thing. It's laying out for us how history in the future from Daniel's perspective is about to unfold. And the first beast, as in chapter 2's statue vision, likely refers to the king of Babylon. That's the first kingdom. And they seem to unfold from there and go literally from bad to worse. And it ends with that fourth kingdom that's beyond any kind of animal-like description. It's as though Daniel didn't even have a category in the whole animal world to portray something this evil. Now, many, not all, conservative scholars would unfold in history these kingdoms this way. It starts with Babylon, and it moves to Medo-Persia, and then to Greece, and then to Rome, and yet Rome seems to hearken to a yet future thing uh, that may unfold fully at the return of Christ. Professor James Hamilton describes it this way and the significance of these kingdoms. He says, the four kingdoms prophesied by Daniel are both historical and symbolic. Historical in that they match the kingdoms between Daniel and the first coming of Christ and symbolic in that they encapsulate the tendencies and characteristics of the kingdoms of the world which will continue and continue until the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So these are four kingdoms that unfolded in history and are unfolding in history. Um, and they were future to Daniel. And this last one, this fourth one, is likely has future ramifications for us as well. 
They represent unspeakable evil that results in persecution and suffering for the people of God. Especially when we look far into the future and see this little horn, this little king that comes up amongst the ten. Look, look at what, how Daniel, it's described to Daniel in verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. In verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, that horn, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. One writer helps us, uh, Professor Dale Davis, when he says, the one Daniel calls the little horn here in chapter 7 has correspondence to the one that Paul calls the man of lawlessness in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians 2, and whom John would call the Antichrist in 1 John chapter 2. So this is what the future looks like for the people of God from where Daniel is standing, right? There will be unfolding throughout history evil empire after evil empire that will bring suffering upon God's people that culminates and ends finally at the return of Christ in the fullness of his kingdom. So this for us, church, is a call to be long-suffering, to be willing to sit in the room of hardship and suffering and even persecution and not eat the marshmallow, right? To not deny our Lord because the promise is worth it and the one who makes the promise is faithful. Author Os Guinness um, writes about one of the great Christian leaders of the last century. His name was John Stott. Um, if you've ever had a chance to read his books, you've been blessed. He's a tremendous, tremendous Bible teacher. He was the rector of all souls, Langham Place in London, great Bible teacher. Um, evangelist, author, global leader, and uh, avid birder, I would add. Okay. So I knew, uh, Guinness says, I knew him over many decades, but I will never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour and more of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him, and lying weakly on his back, barely able to speak, John Stott said this in a hoarse whisper. Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. And then Guinness says, would that such a prayer be the passion of our generation too. And this is what, this is what the dark side of Daniel 7, the dreams of Daniel 7, call us to. Long-suffering, faithful, long-suffering in following our King. Okay? And this is especially huge when you're in your 20s. right? When you are committing before God to be long-suffering for all of your days could be five, six, seven decades more. But let's look at what the promised reward is for those who pe persevere because mercifully there's more to the dream and its interpretation than we've already read. There's a second part of the dream. It starts down in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Daniel says, in this dream, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing, white as snow. 
The hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then down in verse 21, as I looked... This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then as part of the angel's interpretation of this part of the dream, down in verse 36, he says, The court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, the dominion of that beast and the little horn, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So, so in this part of Daniel's dream, after the four beasts, now there are two entities that show up. The Ancient of Days is the first and it, we sang about it earlier. It's a title for God. And the description describes him as holy and yet judging with fire. Um, it's, it emphasizes his eternal nature and his place as worthy judge of all. Every empire, every individual. This, one writer says, is a name for God on his judgment seat. Okay. And we know it's God for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is that he's surrounded by innumerable worshipers, right? A thousand, thousands served him, verse 10 says. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. It's like saying infinity times infinity stood before him, all serving and worshiping him who sits on the throne as the Ancient of Days. Okay, that's the first character in the second part of the dream. The second character is one who is called the Son of Man. And it's a title, on the one hand, that means exactly what it sounds like it means. This is a man. He's the Son of a man. Um, but it says he's like a Son of Man. And that clues us in that there may be more to him than that this is just a man. And the traits that are ascribed to him indicate that. One most notably is that this man, this son of man, is what's called a cloud rider. Okay, he sounds like something out of Star Wars or something, but he's a cloud rider. Look, look at verse 13. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And being a cloud rider in ancient literature like this is a divine attribute. This is how God travels not regular folk, okay? Listen to Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He makes 
the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So this son of man is like a divine man, right? And so is it any surprise that Jesus' favorite title for himself in the New Testament is the Son of Man? Perhaps most powerfully on the night before and the trials on the night before he went to the cross. Listen to this exchange from Matthew 26. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, and at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is virtually quoting Daniel 7 here and claiming it for himself. He is the cloud-riding Son of Man. Okay. So what does this mean? This part of the vision with the Ancient of Days enthroned and the Son of Man there with him. What does it mean for the saints, for you and me as people who believe that Jesus is the Son of Man? Okay. Well, first, it means we live in a world where evil empires reign to some degree. Okay. It, it anticipates and foretells this. Um, Professor Dale Davis puts it compellingly. He says, sometimes one must descend to particulars to feel the point. Generalizations have no edge regarding evil. He says the last century provides too many samples. Turkish government troops had already killed up to 100,000 Armenians in 1895 and 96. Then in 1915, the Turks accused the Armenians of assisting Russian invaders. And so April the 24th was set as Armenian Liquidation Day. As many as 600,000 died that day. Many under great cruelty, like having their heads placed in vices and squeezed until they collapsed. When Koreans protested Japanese tyranny in 1919, men and boys had their fingers passed over red-hot wires. Toenails were ripped from flesh with pinchers. Some were flogged repeatedly. And then there was Black Friday during World War II when Japanese troops went through Alexandra Hospital in Singapore, bayoneting every patient, doctor, and nurse, and then tying hundreds of Chinese hand-to-hand -hand and massacring them on the beaches. And then he says this, Daniel's vision is telling us that history is beastly. Even for the saints, even for God's people, even for us. Okay. This, is, this is no mere marshmallow deprivation that we are staring down and asked to be faithful in. It's real suffering caused by real evil. And it calls for long suffering. Because this is God's pattern in the world for his people. Suffering, then glory. Okay. This is the way of Christ. 
suffering, then glory. Beware of false teachers who leave out the first half of that equation. And they say, you can have glory now because you're a kid of the king. You can have health, wealth, and prosperity now. Daniel 7 is not just Daniel's nightmare. It's their nightmare, okay? Trying to make sense out of what he says is our world. And because suffer we must. This is the way of Jesus. This is what Jesus said of himself. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And he said it of those who would follow him, of us. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The Apostle Paul would famously add, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the world we live in. This is God's way in it. For three and even four empires represent the unfolding of history before Christ returns. And throughout that time, evil is reigning in some way, shape, or form with human ribs hanging from their mouths. Those, those are the ribs of the saints in many cases. Every day in 2021, every single day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh writes that prophecy is necessary because God has chosen to settle his accounts with men slowly. And he says God is eternal and so is his plan for all creation. And he's in no hurry to fulfill his promises as a result. Whether his promises of eternal kingdom for all the saints or the promise of eternal destruction and judgment for sinners, God's plan and program are carried out on his schedule, not ours. And then he says, prophecy becomes necessary from time to time to remind men and women like you and me of those things God has planned for the future, which he will surely fulfill. And so we wait, and we persevere, and we endure, because we know that God settles his accounts with men slowly, but he will surely settle them. And so the hope that sustains us during long-suffering is twofold. Evil will be judged, right? and good will reign. Listen again to this beautiful twofold hope in verses 26 and 27. The angel says, the court shall sit in judgment. That's God's court, the divine court. And his dominion, that of the beast, and this horn shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. We receive the kingdom. God will prevail. His kingdom will smash the evil reigns of men. Back in 2010, Time Magazine uh, did a Q&A with um, South African Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And he was asked this question from a, a reader in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He said, after all you've seen and endured, 
in South Africa, are you really as optimistic as your book, Made for Goodness, says you are? And this is how Tutu answered the question. He said, I'm not optimistic. No, I'm quite different. I'm hopeful. I'm a prisoner of hope. In the world, you have very bad people, Hitler, Idi Amin, and they look like they are going to win. All of them, all of them have bitten the dust, and it's as though he's speaking Daniel 7 to us. And then, all will be well. All manner of things shall be well when the king comes. Listen, listen to the beauty of that kingdom from Revelation 21, where John heard a loud voice from the throne, and it was saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that's the kingdom that people who believe in Jesus as the divine Son of Man get in on. Verse 17 and 18 again, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. We will receive this amazing forever kingdom. This is the hope that enables our long suffering. We will receive this kingdom, possess it forever and ever, even forever and ever. And we know the one who makes this promise is faithful. And so we can say no to the marshmallow of denying our faith to relieve our suffering. And we wait, we endure, and we persevere in long suffering. If you would, let's stand. We'll close this part of our time together in response to the word and declaring that God is our great hope and our great fortress.